Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Melissa Harrison from the University of Wisconsin-Madison on this show. Melissa, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD from MIT in 2006. You then moved on to do a postdoc at the University of California in Berkeley from 2006 to 2011. Then you joined the Department of Biomolecular Chemistry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison as an assistant professor and were promoted to associate professor with tenure in 2018. And basically you are still there today. Um, a question I'd like to ask Every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. So, I mean, um, one of the things that I think uh, was really formative was uh, growing up, my parents taught. So I have a, I have a tw identical twin sister um, and she they taught both of us to look at the world and ask questions. And in particular, these questions were relating to nature. And so I have these amazing memories of, you know, going on hikes and bringing uh, magnifying glasses to look at bugs. And, um, and then, you know, I have memories of my father drawing water molecules on a cocktail napkin when we we're out to dinner. And um, so that was great. And in some ways, science is kind of the family business. Um, so um, I come from a impressive family. Um, both of my grandmothers had PhDs. Um, and actually ran research labs. Um, and um, my father and his brother um, were and are professors. Um, and so in some ways, I sort of knew what I was getting into. I was entering the family business, but I also knew what I was getting into in that I think my father was knew how tough um, academia can be to get into. And if anything, maybe discouraged me. And I have this memory of having my first sort of worries as a sophomore in college about whether I was going to be able to cut it. And my father's response was that I could um, always go to law school after my postdoc, which to a 20-year-old was not particularly encouraging. Um, but I was really lucky to have this amazing academic advisor, Don Morisato, who was a, a, a assistant professor at Harvard Medical School at the time. And he said to me, Melissa, whatever career you choose, it's going to be competitive. So you might as well compete in what you love. And I think that's been a really great uh, way to go through science is as long as you love it, it's it doesn't feel like a job. So, um, so yeah, I entered the family business, but uh, uh, more that gave me the up to know what I was getting into. Yeah, it's really good to know what what you're up to when when starting something, because it's not a, a short, uh, a short uh, journey. No. And, you know, you like so many jobs, right? You're trained in one thing, but then becoming a professor is really a whole bunch of different skills, right? It's not, you're not really at the bench as much anymore. You still get to think about science, but you also have that real joy of training and mentoring the next generation of scientists. Um, and then all the annoying paperwork and stuff like that, that you also have to deal with. So, yeah. so let's uh, let's talk about your science that mainly centers around zygotic genome activation, pioneer factors during development, and modeling of human diseases. Um, in this interview, I want to focus mainly about the first two. Maybe we can also touch upon the the latter. Um, I want to start in the year 2011. But before we dive into your work, could you maybe introduce the main topic of your research, which is Zelda and Grainy Head? 
Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that has driven me since actually I was an undergrad researcher um, in a yeast lab, Kevin Struhl's lab, has been understanding transcription. I've always been interested in um, proteins interacting with DNA um, in particular. And then I grew to be interested in development. And so that's why I did my PhD in C. elegans and studied transcription factors during vulval development in C. elegans in the Horvitz lab. And then um, I moved to do this joint postdoc between a biochemist and a geneticist, um, um, Mike Botchin and Tom Klein, and really still wanted to focus on conserved developmental transitions and understanding transcription and their role in development. Um, And for me, I landed on Drosophila as the model system because it's this sweet spot that allows us to do pretty much anything we want to do and yet still be able to answer these big conserved questions. So Zelda and Grainy Head are two transcription factors that the lab studies. And the reason we study these transcription factors are because for Zelda, it's involved in this incredibly um, important conserved developmental transition, which you mentioned, this maternal to zygotic transition and zygotic genome activation. And Grainy Head, in part, we got into because of a potential role in that, but really we've diverged because grainy head is really interesting because it's actually completely conserved um, in terms of even the protein level um, from probably fungus all the way to humans and has similar roles in uh, developmental transitions and is uh, mutated in a number of cancers. So sort of the reason we focus on these two factors is because of the broader concepts that we hope that they they can uh, tell us about transcription development and disease. So the first paper I saw during my research uh, for this interview focused on the competitive binding of the of those two uh, transcription factors to promoters of Drosophila genes. Could you maybe talk about the role of Zelda and Granny Head at this specific transition um, as studied in the study? Yeah, so I mean, so that was the first work coming out of my postdoctoral work where uh, Chris Rushlow had identified Zelda as this activator of the zygotic genome. And we had been looking for something that could bind to the same motifs and had identified Granny Head. And so um, what, you know, Following up on that, I, I, I'm not sure that I, um, you know, one revises. I I'm completely believe the biochemistry. I'm not positive that they may actually be competing in the way that I postulated in that paper. Um, and so I think that Grainy Head um, certainly has a role, but we uh, published much later that Grainy Head's role in sort of defining cis-regulatory regions in the early embryo may actually be uh, compensated for by other factors. And so the competition i think i'm less i'm less convinced of at this point um so yeah okay so you dig deeper into the function of zelda in a plus genetics paper in the same year um so what did you find there about the activation of zelda at the maternal to zygotic transition yeah so that was really an exciting time because as i said we had you know, my work had been using biochemistry and DNA footprinting to identify something that could bind to these DNA elements that had been enriched in these genes that were in the first expressed genes in the early embryo. And so uh, Chris Rushlow's lab, and I identified Grainy Head, and Chris Rushlow's lab had done a yeast one hybrid and identified Zelda. And it became pretty clear to me from her beautiful nature paper that Zelda really was the protein we had all been looking for. And so um, I was still very interested in this transcriptional regulation. And so um, I worked on identifying where Zelda was binding. And then this was fortuitous, which was that Mike Eisen's lab, which was not one of my postdoctoral mentors, but was also someone um, at Berkeley, had also identified these DNA elements in all of these cis-regulatory regions that were bound by um, these uh, 
transcription factors that uh, determine anterior posterior patterning. And so we collaborated with Mike Eisen and performed ChIP-seq. And it was, in fact, one of the earlier times that people had been moving away from microarrays now to these new sequencing technologies. And we wanted to assay Zelda binding at these multiple time points spanning this really dynamic time in development when the embryo is transitioning from the specified germ cells to the totipotent cells of the early embryo. And what we turned out we had to do was we had to hand sort these embryos based on uh, developmental stage because you can't get timing tight enough because the nuclear cycles, the division cycles are every 10 minutes. And so you can imagine that if the division cycles are every 10 minutes, you have exponentially more DNA even just a few minutes later. Um, And so uh, that was a huge amount of work uh, sorting those embryos. Um, Luckily, they were fixed. And the best thing was that uh, it worked. And I still remember uh, where I was sitting. It was a beautiful day sitting outside at a bakery on a weekend when I could look at the genome browser tracks um, that uh, um, that uh, we we had identified and could see that we it worked one and that it was really interesting that it's binding early was maintained over these division cycles and that largely where Zelda was binding initially it stayed bound. And so that was really interesting because that wasn't what people thought transcription factors were doing. People thought transcription factors sort of bound when they were needed. um, And that didn't seem like the case for Zelda. And we went on to do a bunch of analysis and that was really fantastic learning and working really closely with my guys in who was sort of like a third postdoctoral mentor for me. So I had three postdoc mentors. Yeah, yeah, so you already said that you um, followed up on this work and uh, this was done then in your own lab because you started then your own lab and uh, you you looked at prominent features of chromatin um, in the context of of Zelda binding, um, like chromatin accessibility, transcription factor binding and gene expression. So how does Zelda influence those processes in uh, the early drosophila embryo? Yeah, so... um So one of the things that had come out of this initial 2011 plus genetic paper with Mike Eisen was that um, Zelda was not only distinctive in that it bound and remained bound despite these rapid nuclear divisions, but that instead of most transcription factors that bind between 5 or 15 percent of the motifs in the genome, it occupied 64% of its canonical motifs were actually bound. So we could already tell there was something distinctive about Zelda. And so a lot of the ongoing work in my lab was sort of uh, setting up sort of what are the features of Zelda and what is it doing. And so um, around that time, Ken Zaret had also uh, started really formulating and people had started latching onto this idea that there were specialized transcription factors called pioneer factors that were able to bind to DNA, even in the context of nucleosomes, which normally present a barrier to transcription factor binding. And then these um, factors could um, promote chromatin accessibility and then influence the binding of subsequent transcription factors. And really the 2011 plus genetics paper, we suggested that uh, Zelda might have these features. And so we went on to test that directly using our ability to get rid of Zelda in the early embryo and asset in chromatin accessibility. And then other groups like Alex Starks and Chris Russlow's and Steve Small's group looked at binding of additional transcription factors. And so the sum of work from our lab, but also these other labs really showed that Zelda has these characteristics of a pioneer transcription factor. And we subsequently could show that, in fact, in vitro, Zelda can bind to DNA when it is uh, wrapped up in a nucleosome. 
So that was really powerful for us in terms of understanding how Zelda might be activating the zygotic genome. And then what was even more gratifying was as um, people really started latching on and studying um, this maternal to zygotic transition in other species, um, you know, then we identified people identified in, in zebrafish and in um, now in mice and also in frogs, this similarly uh proteins with similar characteristics being important for driving those developmental transitions in these other species. So Zelda, what was really lovely is that we're not just studying fly development, we're understanding more broadly the concepts about how this really essential developmental transition is regulated at the level of transcription factors and genome reprogramming. Um, and one of the things that I think is really exciting about the MZT and, and our studies of it and in terms of R, I mean the community is, you know, in 1982, Newport and Kirshner had sort of really begun to um, discuss this idea of this mid-blastula transition or this MZT. But it wasn't until, you know, 20, about 20 years later or so that we really revisited it because of the technologies that had come about, right? This, these new genome-wide technologies allowed us now to really rapidly start to understand this transition at a level of detail that just couldn't have been done uh, 20 years before. So that's been really fun to be a part of. Yeah. Maybe could we circle back a little bit to, to this pioneer factor idea or the, the concept of pioneer factors. Um, so what is exactly the difference between this pioneer factors and the transcription factors? So do transcription factors bind only to DNA and uh, pioneer factors can then also bind DNA and nucleosomes or is it just the confirmation of the DNA that is then different? I feel I feel like you might be trying to get me in trouble here now. <laughs> like <laughs> anything. No, I know I'm teasing. But, you know, anything in biology, I think for us, a pioneer factor is really a, a, a framework to understand biochemical properties. And of course, I think biology is all, it's, it's never going to be a, a black and white set of characteristics or an either or. And so we actually have um you know, unpublished work that we've been doing in which we're really trying to um, use a more um, sort of controlled system to really start to get at those questions. Um, and um, I think, like, it may come as not a surprise to many people, I think it's more of a continuum, and it has to do with a lot of both protein intrinsic and protein extrinsic features. Um, so I'm happy to chat a little more about that if that would be yeah. important. But I think, there are clearly proteins that have the, these, these capabilities of defining cis regulatory regions. And I don't think it's just about how these proteins engage chromatin, but I think it's also about when they're expressed, where they're expressed, how highly they're expressed, where their motifs are, um, what other proteins are expressed with them, things like that. Yeah. So I want to go back to Granny Head because later you returned also to study this protein further and studied this, uh, its gene regulatory network. Um, so what did you find out about this? Yeah, so I mean, so Granny Head was really interesting to us because we, you know, we it was this important conserved factor that has these disease relevance in humans and we had all the tools to study it. So we wanted to identify where Granny Head was binding, not just at one developmental time point, but as at many developmental time points. And what we were surprised to find was that when we assayed it at multiple developmental time points and then even looked at data um, outside of the embryo, even in, in the larva, it was largely binding to the same um, C 
same cis regulatory regions. And these were open accessible regions. And I think I was a little bit worried at the time because I was starting a lab. We had this one protein Zelda that had this pioneer factor characteristics. And, you know, I was like, Rainy had started to look like that to me, but I didn't want every, you know, you don't want to be that person who sees what you want to see wherever. And so, you know, we went on and then it was, you know, we were now trying to functionally test whether grainy head was required for uh, not only binding to accessible regions, but whether it was actually instrumental in defining those um, accessible chromatin regions. And actually, as we were working on this in the embryo, Stein Ertz's lab published a, a beautiful paper um, using a, a lot of different um, technologies, both taxi, but also some evolutionary analysis to show that grainy head was really important in determining chromatin accessibility um, in the larval uh, discs. And uh, so that was nice. And we're like, okay, maybe grain head really is a pioneer factor. And then when we were looking in the embryo, we actually found sort of something quite different in that grainy head, when we got rid of grainy head, um, it largely wasn't necessary for chromatin accessibility in the early embryo. And so it seemed that potentially then it's pioneering uh, functionality, not its binding, but something else was changing over development. And we're, we're interested in, in what that might be. Is it cofactors that it interacts with? Is it the chromatin environment? Because um, I think that will be important in understanding how it may have these roles in cancer, because it can be overexpressed in cancers. Um, and certainly, uh, there's also nice work from Robert Blelick's lab and others that it shows that grainy head actually is a pioneer factor in um, in mammals. So clearly these functionalities are conserved, which I think is going to be really important. So I always like to talk to people who invented own methods. <laughs> and so did you at one point uh, uh, of your uh, career. And uh, you developed an optogenic strategy to rapidly and reversibly inactivate CELDA. Um, how does this approach work and what did you find using it? Yeah, so, I mean, we didn't invent it, which was sort of nice. We sort of built on what other had done as well, which is CRY2 is this blue light responsive um, element that um, is normally part of a two-component system. And so as we were building this two-component system in which blue light could allow us to mislocalize um, Zelda by dimerization to this CIB uh, partner, um, Tim Saunders' lab had shown that they had added this CRY2 tag to a different transcription factor, Bicoid, as a, as a transgene, but could show that blue light alone could inactivate this transcription factor. And so we had already used Cas9 gene editing to modify Zelda. And so we thought, well, let's just, before we build up this two-component system, let's just try and see what happens. And so we we shown blue light and we could use a lot of um, various um different strategies to show that it does inactivate Zelda. We see misregulation of Zelda target genes. Um, we can show that the embryos die very similar to when Zelda embryos, uh, Zelda mutant embryos die. Um, but when we looked at the protein levels, the protein wasn't degraded. We could still see the protein there and we could still see it nuclear. Um, how exactly it works, uh, we don't know. So CRY2, often people fuse it to disordered regions and can make this opto sort of phase transition. Um, so we thought maybe that was it because Zelda does have a lot of intrinsically disordered regions. We fixed and, and looked to see whether we could see giant globs of Zelda <laughs> in the nucleus. We don't. Um, so, um, we did some chip to see whether it was, um, 
keeping Zelda from the chromatin. We think it might be. Um, so we don't know exactly how the system works. And I think that's something that we're still trying to sort out as we tag other proteins. We've certainly tagged additional proteins and seen that they can be inactivated um, with this blue light method, um, but we don't know exactly how it works. But what really was nice is this comes back in some ways to technology um, and how we can move science forward as technology develops, which is the reviewers on our 2011 uh, original paper with my guys in where we did the chip seek, um, when it was at PLOS Biology, asked us, well, how do you know that it's just not binding driving transcription of these early transcription factors? And so really the defect isn't in these widespread issues. It's just a few transcription factors, but if they don't get turned on, then Zelda you know, can cause this death because they can't widely activate the genome. And we thought, well, this is all occurring in an hour <laughs> of development. We have no way to get rid of Zelda. You know, we've already succeeded in getting rid of it maternally. We have no way of getting rid of it in that acutely, right? It's even too fast for proteasomal mediated decay. And at that point, a lot of these um, proteasomal in, um, decay mechanisms hadn't worked. And so really it was with the advent of sort of optogenetic strategies that we suddenly could address this question and so we can then really precisely inactivate Zelda at different time points, you know, and it should it inactivated within seconds, we think, from other data um, from collaborators. And so we could then ask, you know, is Zelda really required early or is it also required later? And we could show that, in fact, Zelda was required continuously. You couldn't get rid of Zelda at any one time point. Yeah. Are you still using the method? Yeah, we've now tagged um, additional factors and um, have been using that to inactivate um, different uh, proteins. So one of them is like a, a CDP ortholog, and um, we can see that it, it successfully inactivates. So we're hoping this gives us tools to really precisely navigate, uh, at, you know, not just looking at something's role throughout this transition, but precisely dissect apart the roles at different stages of this dynamic reprogramming process. So we are jumping back and forth between Zelda and Granny Head in the timeline here, but next up was a paper where you looked at the establishment of chromatin accessibility of Granny Head. And you asked the question whether pioneer factor function is intrinsic to Granny Head or whether pioneering activity is developmentally modulated. So which of the one <laughs> did turn out to be true? Yeah, so it turned out that it, it seems to be developmentally modulated in that we can see that grainy head is already bound in the early embryo to a lot of these same cis regulatory regions that it binds, as I said, all the way into the larva. But while Steinert's lab showed that it was required in the larva globally for accessibility, we could get rid of it in the embryo and accessibility was largely unchanged. And we could even use Cas9 gene editing to mutate a single binding site, show that grainy head was no longer binding, but that chromatin was still accessible. Um, you know, that's a single site, um, but it seems to me then that there's some sort of developmental regulation that's occurring. And there may be other factors that can either compensate for grainy head um, in the early embryo that are not present in the larva or, um, you know, additional features of the early of the embryo that are allowing uh, grainy head to be not necessary. So we're still interested in that grainy head is post-translationally modified. There's certainly possibilities for that. It could have to do with, you know, we think that pioneering may have a relationship with sort of how much 
time the protein spends occupying the chromatin. Um, and so we could imagine that, you know, the dynamics of grainy head um, chromatin occupancy could be changed by a large variety of factors over development. Yeah, next you were interested if more pioneer factors in addition to cell that were necessary for the maternal to zygotic transition. Um, so is it indeed true or did you find some? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thankfully, yes. Yeah, so in fact, One of the sort of first, um, one of the first papers from my lab, we had looked at the role of Zelda in chromatin accessibility. And so if Zelda is a pioneer factor, we would expect chromatin accessibility to be lost everywhere that it, it was bound. And what we found is that, in fact, there were 400 regions that, you know, of the top 5,000 accessible that Zelda was bound to that lost accessibility. So that those were the regions that Zelda was acting like a pioneer factor. And we could show that, in fact, even downstream transcription factor binding like Bicoid was specifically lost at these regions. So we knew that at these regions, Zelda was acting as a pioneer factor. But we also found 1,500 regions that Zelda bound to robustly, but remained accessible even in the absence of Zelda. And so I think this comes back to this idea of, you know, is a pioneer factor always a pioneer factor, right? And um, and so we we looked um, at sort of what motifs were selectively enriched um, in the regions that maintained accessibility even in the absence of Zelda. And we identified GA dinucleotide motifs, and we knew that those can be bound by a protein called GAGA factor. Um, and beautiful work from a large number of labs, uh, you know, Carl Wu, John Liss, um, you know, Bruce Alberts, a lot of people had shown that GAGA factor uh, can be involved in promoting chromatin accessibility, largely in tissue culture. And so we were struggling because we wanted to knock out GAF and look at its role in chromatin accessibility in the early embryo. But this comes back to these challenges and these technologies, which was that um, GAF is required uh, for the development of an oocyte. So we couldn't use the same trick that we had used to deplete Zelda to deplete GAF because it wouldn't make any eggs and therefore no embryos. And RNAi, uh, GAF regulates itself, so RNAi is not particularly effective. And so what we did was we realized we had to attack GAF at the protein level rather than the RNA level. Um, and so what we did was we added a GFP tag to the endogenous GAF, and then we took advantage of a system that Marcus Alfalter's lab developed in which they fused a nanobody that recognizes GFP to an F-box protein. And so this recruits those GFP tag proteins to the ubiquitin um, ligase machinery and leads to degradation. And this worked beautifully for GAF because you can look at GFP. And then um, we could then go on and um, start to assay the role of GAF in chromatin accessibility and in gene expression. And, um, you know, work from other labs like Tommy Kaplan's and Shelby Blyce had also suggested this role for GAGA factor. And so we could show that indeed GAGA factor is another pioneer transcription factor that is important for activating the zygotic genome. And we have another um, story that we're, we're writing up right now. In fact, that GAF seems not only to be important for determining the um, open accessible genome, but it's also important for establishing heterochromatin in those same nuclei at the same time. So we're really interested in this sort of duality of these pioneer factors. Um, and then we, you know, there are additional pioneer factors. So Erica Larson's lab showed that another GA dinucleotide binding pioneer factor called CLAMP is important. And then Angela Stathopoulos and Shelby Blythe identified a protein called um, OPA that's a pioneer factor slightly later. So we actually think what there is is a sort of dynamic um, transition, I wouldn't say handoff, 
from one pioneer factor to another during this reprogramming event. And so that's really nice and gratifying if we think about this as a sort of more general feature of pioneering, I mean, reprogramming, because we know that reprogramming in culture involves pioneer factors and involves Act 4, it involves SOX 2, NANA, KLF. And we also know that it's a it's a progress, right? Not every cell is, is reprogrammed efficiently. Um, it occur, the reprogramming in the embryo is very efficient. But again, it's not just one pioneer factor. It's a series of pioneer factors. And understanding how they cooperate to allow for this efficient reprogramming, we think is going to be sort of teach us sort of more global principles about how do you restructure a genome such that it can move from one cell state to another. So you now mentioned several times that uh, technology is important. <laughs> and uh, one thing you're looking at is uh, chromatin accessibility and the openness of chromatin in general. So did you somehow switch in your career at the, the technology that looks at um, the openness of chromatin? So did you start with DNA-seq and now you, you do um, ATTAC or are you using ATTAC-seq from the beginning? Yeah, no, that's a great question. We never we never did DNA-seq. We skipped over that one. Um, so we did in the original paper in which we looked at Zelda accessibility, we did FAIR-seq. Um, and that was actually um, useful because, again, we could sort the embryos because FAIR was a, is on a fixed population. Um, but then as technology developed, we moved to a TAC-seq. And then we could build on um, Shelby Blythe's work in which he he developed a technique or at least showed that you could do it and we we can do it too, um, which was doing attack on single embryos. So that's the other thing that's been really powerful is, you know, Susan Lott, when she was in Mike Eisen's lab, developed sort of a single embryo um, RNA-seq method, which we need to use to look very precisely. If we're getting, you know, activation of the zygotic genome within minutes, then we need to very precisely stage the embryos so we can use um, nuclear density and fluorescently labeled um, histones to just directly harvest the embryos at precise times after mitosis. Um, and so, you know, these technologies, both from FAIR-seq to ATAC-seq, as well as single being able to now do things at, at lower and lower cell numbers has been really powerful. Yeah. So more recently, you looked at the function of Zelda later in development. So for this, you looked at neural development. So what did you find there about the cell type specific functions of Zelda? Yeah, so this was um, and is a still a really fun collaboration with uh, Chang Yu Lee's lab at the University of Michigan. And so, um, you know, even in Chris Rushlow's original paper where she identified Zelda, we already had hints that Zelda wasn't just important for the early embryo because in the early embryo, that Zelda is maternally deposited as an RNA. But what she showed was that Zelda was also essential zygotically, that if you if the embryo didn't have zygotic Zelda, it still died. And so that said, Zelda has essential functions outside of this maternal to zygotic transition. And so we were, of course, interested in this um, link between sort of reprogramming totipotency, pluripotency. And so we looked in a number of different stem cell populations um, using a, a GFP tag version of Zelda. So again, Cas9 gene editing technology, which actually we also helped to develop in collaboration with um, two other um, junior women faculty at, at Madison when we were all junior faculty, which was uh, really fun, but really changed how we could, that technology really changed what we could ask. And so we could use this GFP tag version and look in these different cells. We could see it, see Zelda expressed in the neural stem cells of the larval brain. And then we could take advantage of the fact that Chang Yu Li's lab studies in particular these type 2 neural stem cells. And what's nice about them 
is like all stem cells, they divide asymmetrically to self-renew and produce a partially differentiated progeny. But there's exactly eight of these per larval brain lobe. And so one can then quantifiably detect changes in the number of these um, stem cell populations. And so we could use um, a lot of tricks in, in fly genetics and, and um, build on beautiful work from the Lee Lab and others um, in which we could essentially show, we could do chip seek and look at where Zelda was binding. And for us being particularly interested in um, the role of this pioneer factor, you know, and given how stable Zelda binding is across the MZT, we thought, of course, it's going to be binding to all the same sites. Um, but that's not what we found at all. <laughs> um, we found that, in fact, um, it binds really differently in the different tissues. And in fact, Zelda binding in the um, Zelda binding in the neural stem cells um, binds to regions that are not enriched for its canonical DNA motif, but they still, we could show that these were still important regulatory regions. So we could show that uh, a region upstream of this master regulator called TALIS, which Zelda drives expression of both in the embryo and in the neural stem cells, it actually defines different enhancers for this same uh, transcript, uh, depending on whether it's in the embryo or in the neural stem cells. And so we have ongoing work trying to um, look at what is driving Zelda to these different regions in these two different cell types. And so um, that's still a work in progress, but we, um, we think then that, you know, one of the things that's sort of nice for us now, if we come back to your sort of broader questions about pioneer factors, is that, you know, our work with grainy head showed that grainy head binding is stable throughout development, but that its functionality in terms of determining chromatin accessibility appears to be developmentally regulated. By contrast with Zelda, what we find is that Zelda binding is developmentally regulated. Um, and therefore, these pioneer factors clearly aren't just doing the same thing in every cell type and that there is this interplay between uh, cell state and pioneer factor function. And that is another area that we're sort of working to begin to dissect, which I think will have important implications in reprogramming in terms of, you know, reprogramming is overexpression of pioneer factors in a specified cell type. Um, and in disease where grainy head, for instance, this pioneer factor is overexpressed in cancer. Yeah, so this leads me to my last question because you were partially answering it already. So what are you working on right now and what are your plans for, let's say, the next five years? Oh my God, pressure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think we're right now sort of, we continue to be really excited in terms of, I think, how we can use the Drosophila system to answer these big questions about development, transcription and, and cell state transitions. Um, and so things that we're working on right now are sort of, we don't understand how Zelda um, activates the zygotic genome. It's this huge 1,596 amino acid protein. We, we also had an early PLOS genetics paper in which we mutated conserved regions um, and suggest that it's actually the intrinsically disordered regions that are important for activation. But we have some ongoing data in which we're looking at potentially roles of some of these conserved elements in um in being in its tissue-specific function. Um, we're looking at proteins that Zelda may interact with that could help it activate transcription, including things like histone acetyltransferases. Um, we're trying to understand, just like you said, by exogenously expressing these proteins in a defined system, what are the 
defining features of a pioneer factor. Where are they binding? How are they accessing the genome? And using a combination of biochemistry and um, sort of genomics uh, to do that. We continue to uh, look in the neural stem cells, hoping that we can use some of the data from our collaborators to identify potentially barriers to uh, pioneer factor binding. Um, and then, you know, as I said, we can br briefly mention that we also have an ongoing collaboration with Peter Lewis, um, who's um, in my department, whose lab is right next door, who I've known since um, we were grad students. And he studies um, oncohistones and their role in cancer. And so we've been collaborating with him to use the FLY system uh, to, to start to get at the mechanism since PRC2, which is... Um, the, the enzyme, which is inhibited by those oncohistones, is, is first discovered in flies and is completely conserved. So can we now model it in an organism and ask some questions that aren't so easy to ask in, in cell culture? So, yeah, I think that, I think that covers it. <laughs> that sounds all, all very interesting. But um, when we go through your career, I mean, this all sounds very successful and, and uh, this is all published and obviously only yeah. successful work gets published. So has, have there been examples of Yeah, unsuccessful experiments or phases where you have reached at an end and did not know how to proceed um, in your career? And um, if yes, how did you overcome them? Yeah, um, you know, I think I think it comes back maybe to where we started with Don Morisato's comment about whatever you're going to do, it's going to be competitive. So you might as well compete in what you love. And, you know, things that I think are really important um, You know, so for instance, um, when I went on the job market, I was hired because my husband got a job here and I was a spousal hire. Um, and that was in large part because we went on the job market before I would have, before that PLOS genetics paper came out. But I also think it, it was a challenge that I had to overcome in terms of basically just putting my head down and saying, look, you know, I have applied, I have these great ideas. And just because, you know, I have this opportunity to do something with it. And, and so I continued to just, I didn't let it undermine my faith in myself to just go after the exciting science. I think the other thing is I love collaborating. I think it is such a much more fun way to do science than competing. Um, I've been really lucky to have uh, collaborated with people who are as excited by the same questions that I am, but maybe address them in a slightly different way. And so for me, that's been a really helpful way to overcome challenges is to find people around who, who can help and don't think that you can do everything. Um, you know, in the future things, I, I really think that imaging is, um, I mean, not surprising that genomics was a technology that revolutionized our understanding of transcription and development. And I think the new imaging technologies are incredibly powerful. So we've Uh, collaborated some with Mustafa Mir, who um, was in Xavier Darzak's lab and is now has his own lab at, at Penn, um, at CHOP. And, you know, just thinking about, you know, what can we learn, but then also how can we collaborate with people to do the most exciting science? And I think that's that's the way that I get out of sort of mental mental dead ends is sort of finding something that excites me and finding people that I can work with who are as excited by these questions. And I'd rather work together than... Mm -hmm work against anyone yeah thank you for sharing that um, so in the last 38 minutes we have taken a journey through your scientific career can you maybe give a short summary about your maybe most important findings or something that we might have missed yeah i mean i think i tried to hit most of the things <laughs> along the way and so i mean i think things 
things that are really important that I didn't highlight as much um, because it was so based on the science is how gratifying this career is in terms of mentoring um, the next generation of scientists. And um, it's something that I really enjoy. Um, you know, I may, you know, we all teach, but I think mentor teaching is the kind of teaching that I most enjoy. And I've been incredibly lucky and honored to have just a fantastic collection of scientists, mostly graduate students, um, come through the lab and do this, you know, work work together to do this exciting science and be a team. And I think um, that's something that I think, um, especially the next generation, the people I'm training aren't necessarily interested in the job I have. And I don't think that they can see how much fun it is to get to compete in what you love and work with other people who are interested and excited and learning. Um, so I think for me, it's this combination of working with young people who are excited um, that I really enjoy, but then I feel also really lucky and um, maybe prescient a little bit to have been in this maternal to zygotic transition field right as it was taking off, right as it was entering this new area. And, um, you know, I think it's, it is a fantastic collection of people who study this transition. Um, and I love the fact that we're learning principles. So I'm not just, you know, it's not just fly people. There's, you know, zebrafish, frog, you know, it's all organisms, mice, um, using different technologies and different systems that best answer those questions. And I think it's really the sort of team aspect that, um, that I really love about this job. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Melissa, for your time and for being on the show. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.